0: In 1998, American Heritage Magazine compiled a list of the 40 richest people in American history. There were 39 men and one woman on the list. The richest woman, the richest American woman who ever lived was Hetty Green. Hetty was born into a prosperous whaling family in New Bedford, Massachusetts in 1834 where she began a lifelong love affair with money. At the age of six, she began reading financial newspapers. When she turned 13, she worked as a bookkeeper in the family business. She established a pattern of conservative investing, which was to serve her the rest of her days. But Hetty Green was famous in her day not so much for her great wealth But for her great stinginess. Hetty went down in history as the world's greatest miser. On her 21st birthday, she refused to light the candles on her birthday cake so as to not waste them. She later wiped the cake off the candles and returned them to the store the next day for a refund. Upon her father's death, Hetty inherited $5 million. Two weeks later, her aunt died, who had previously promised to leave her a $2 million fortune, but only willed Hetty 65000 and gave the rest to charity. Well, determined to get her aunt's entire estate, Hetty produced a new will, claiming her aunt dictated it to her prior to her death. It took five years to settle the case, which she eventually lost. Hetty did not marry until she was 33, as she was always concerned that potential suitors were after her money. When she finally did marry, she and her husband Edward had two children. When her son Ned was 14, he dislocated his knee in a sledding accident. Hetty refused to pay for him to be treated at a hospital. Instead, she tried to heal the injury at home or by visiting free clinics. Eventually, Ned's leg needed to be amputated because of an infection of gangrene. She lived in a series of grungy hotel rooms, spending as little as $5 a week on living expenses. She argued over every bill she received, and even her succession of lawyers routinely had to sue her to collect their legal fees. She wore the same dress year after year until it was in tatters. When she absolutely had to wash the garment to save money, she instructed that it be laundered only on the bottom where it was dirty. Her usual lunch would be a serving of cold oatmeal, which she would often try to warm on an office radiator. When she died in 1916, she possessed more than $100 million, which would easily make her a billionaire in today's economy. Hetty Green gave up everything, even earthly pleasures, so as to hold on to her wealth. Today we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus has with a rich man who is a lot like Hetty Green. There's no indication that he was a miser, but we will discover that he, too gives up everything to hold on to his wealth. Everything that is important even eternal life. We've been moving through the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. The focus has been on answering the question, to whom does the kingdom belong? Who are the candidates for the kingdom of God? This theme began with two men who went up to the temple to pray, you remember. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So one man did everything right in the eyes of the people and one man did everything wrong in the eyes of the people. And the surprising twist in that story is the one who had nothing to offer God at all is the one who went home justified. The next account, we saw the disciples trying to keep children away from Jesus because they thought that He does not have time for such unimportant members of Jewish society. And of course, Jesus not only welcomes them, but he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And so two different accounts which would have been a shock to the hearers. And if that was not clear enough on who are candidates for the kingdom of God, this interaction that Jesus has will be the final blow to people's assumptions. Jesus encounters a man whom everyone would assume is a candidate for heaven. He's wealthy, he's religious, and he's a seeker. He wants to make sure that he's on the right track. He has a very high value in living for the right things. And so he comes to Jesus just to make sure that he's crossed all of his T's and dotted all of his I's. And Luke records for us in verse 18 he asks this question. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this encounter is recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it has been historically referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. Now it's not clear what Luke means by describing him as a ruler, it could mean he is a leader in the synagogue, or it could mean he is a leader in, a civil leader in Jewish society. But regardless, he would be seen as an important person. Mark refers to him as young, and all three that he is wealthy, and so it's, apparent that this guy has everything going for him he's young he's rich he's an influencer and he comes to jesus and he asks an excellent question now this is not the first time jesus has been asked this question in fact back in luke chapter 10 we saw the very same question posed by the pharisees i'll read it for you luke 10:25 And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in that instance, it was clear that this Pharisee was seeking to trap Jesus. But there's no indication in Luke 18 that this man has ulterior motives. He appears to be sincere in his question. He truly is wondering what, if anything, might be lacking. He strives to keep the commandments. He strives to lead the Jewish people in righteousness. And he comes to Jesus wondering if he's done everything he's supposed to do. So he asks, what must I do? What must I do? Now, this is the question that all religions seek to answer. You want eternal life? You must do something. And what you must do depends on the religion. Islam has at least five main requirements. Roman Catholicism has seven. Mormons have about ten or twelve, depending on if you're male or female. Scientology, my goodness, they have requirements that never seem to end. We just watched a documentary on that movement and boy, these people spend their whole lives and their entire life savings trying to get this thing called clear, which is not a picture of the Judeo-Christian heaven by any means, but it's what they must do if they are to gain the highest level in Scientology which apparently is their idea of heaven. And so every religion has something that you must do, and this man wants to make sure that he is doing everything he's supposed to according to first century Judaism. And Jesus is going to answer him, but before he does, he takes issue with how the man addresses him. Again, verse 18, the man says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there has been much debate on why Jesus would correct him in this way. The cults love this verse. Those cults that come to your door on Saturday morning and they deny that Jesus is God. And they'll say, Look, you have it right here. Jesus says he's not God. He says, duh, duh, duh. Don't call me good. Only God is good. Don't do that. And my response to when they say that is always a question I have for them. Here's a question for you Is Jesus good? I think he is. I think Jesus is good. I think he's perfectly good. He is the embodiment of goodness in humanity. There is none that are good except one, and it's Jesus. In the Old Testament, they knew that Yahweh is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is truly good. He's in every way good. He's perfectly good. And He's not saying only God is good and I am less than good. Or He's not saying I have somehow fallen short of the glory of God. But He's going to make a point to this young man. And I think the point He wants to make is be careful how you use that term, good. So this man comes to Jesus assuming he's like every other rabbi. Good teacher, meaning good by nature. And Jesus takes issue with that because the heart of the Gospel is that man is not good and he is corrupt in every way. And that's why we need a Savior. And so what Jesus is doing here is challenging this man's perspective of what it means to be good. His perspective is probably a lot like your next-door neighbor who thinks he's a good person. He thinks you're a good person. He thinks people are pretty much good. So when this man comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, Jesus says, ho, 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 hold on a second. Let's make sure we have our theological categories correct. Only God is good. Not negating the idea that Jesus is the incarnation of God. But I think by the very nature of Jesus being good, He affirms it. So, Jesus is correcting this man's presuppositions about what it means to be good. So Jesus says, there's only one that's good, and that is God. Let's start again, basically. Now that you have your categories right, man is in the category called bad, God is in the category called good. So don't walk around and call people good. (laughs) That's what I think Jesus is doing here. And you have to start there, because if you get that wrong, you're going to get the whole thing wrong. I mean, if you think man is basically good, then adding some religious works to one's life makes perfect sense. Here, go do these five things, and everything is going to be great. You're already good, you just need a helping hand up, and it's all going to be fine in the end. Just go ahead and do those seven things. Now, Jesus puts those theological categories in view and then He does something super interesting here. His response to His question is totally surprising. Look at verse 19 again. Why do you call Me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay. And then He says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now hang on a second here. Let's back up the tape for a minute. The man comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus points him to the law? The Ten Commandments? Where is the call to faith? Isn't the gospel that we must put our faith in Christ? Isn't much of the New Testament dedicated to telling us that the law is insufficient to save anybody? I mean, I would hope if you overheard a conversation where one person asked a Christian, What must I do to be saved? and the Christian responded by saying, Here's the commandments. I hope you would interrupt that conversation and say, no, no, no. So why does Jesus list the commandments here? And He gives five out of the ten. Why does He do this instead of what He does elsewhere, which is call people to faith in Him? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me that you may have life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isn't that what Jesus does throughout the Gospels? If anyone comes to me, I will never turn him away. I am the resurrection and the life. And goes on and on and on. It's about him. But the commandments? Why does Jesus point him to the commandments? Now, if you are not informed, the New Testament teaches us that the purpose of the law is to humble the sinner, not to save him. The law was never given as a ladder that we might climb our way up into heaven, but it is given as a mirror that we may look deeply into it and discover our guilt. Okay? You look at God's law, you say, oh man, guilty, 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 guilty. That's the purpose of the law according to the New Testament. The law is given to ruin us, not to redeem us. But Jesus, if you notice in the Gospels, how He addresses people in their situation in life is not always the same. He knows what's in man's heart and so his approach varies depending upon the person. If someone is broken and desperate and hopeless and they come to Jesus, he says, come to me. I will, I will carry your burdens. But if someone comes to him thinking they are righteous, he gives them the law to show them that they are not This was his motivation behind much of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus the King comes and in his inaugural address to Israel. He says to them, You have heard it said, Do not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. Why all of this law in that sermon? Because the people thought they were righteous. And so he comes to them and says, you think you've kept this law? Let me tell you what the law is really about. And the point of that whole sermon in Matthew 5-7 through 7 is so the people hear this and say, I'm guilty, what am I going to do? Because that's what the law is supposed to do. One way that modern evangelism has gone off course is that well-meaning Christians try to persuade their friends and neighbors to come to Christ for reasons other than their sin problem. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about people's guilt before God and that there's a hell. And so they tell people, come to Jesus and God has a plan for them and they can live a fulfilling life Or come to Jesus and you can have joy and peace and lasting happiness. Or come to Jesus and He will help you with your alcohol problem or your marriage problem. He'll help you in your relationships. He'll help you be a better parent. But unless the person sees himself as guilty before God and they need Jesus as their substitute who is In their place, they will come to Christ for superficial reasons. And Jesus merely becomes a way for them to fix their lives. Yes, Jesus will help you with your drug problem. Yes, he will help you with your marriage if you follow him. But that is not the message. So what Jesus does by bringing the law to this man who from outward appearances, has it all together, is He wants to show him how far he is from the kingdom. So He he comes and He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts taking him through the commandments. Now, if you ever share the Gospel with people, and I hope you do, you will meet two different kinds of people. You will meet some people who think they're too sinful to be saved. I've done too much evil. I've, I've ruined my life. There's no, way, there's no way God can forgive me for this. That's one kind of person. You don't give the law to that kind of person. They already know their guilt. But then you meet the other kind of person who thinks, oh, I'm a good person. I give to charity. I'm a good neighbor and so forth. And that's the person you give the law to. Let's look through some of God's commandments. Have you ever lied? Of course I have. Who hasn't? Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, once or twice. Or my favorite answer was always, only if I think they can afford it. So this girl I was talking to would steal from like big corporations. you know, Go into Target or something and fill her basket and then run out of there because... You know, they can afford something like that. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Yeah, I do that sometimes. And so you show them, guilty, 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 guilty. So it's law to the proud, but grace to the humble. You don't need to give the Ten Commandments to the one who's destitute and is crying out for mercy. He's already there. You just got to tell him the good news. But the one who is proud at heart who thinks he's good needs to be humbled and shown that he is not. Paul says in Romans 7, he did not know what sin was until he saw the law and then it revealed to him that he was a sinner. So the purpose of the law is to show us our guilt not to become the way of salvation. And rather than Jesus closing the deal with this man who is supposedly seeking, he points him to the law to reveal what's in his heart. And what we find in this young man's heart is pride. Look at verse 21. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. I'm sure we're all familiar with the term Bar Mitzvah, which literally means son of the commandments. That is when a Jewish boy becomes a man and he is now held accountable to know God's commandments and to keep them. And so what this young man is saying is that since he became a son of the commandments, he has kept them all. All of these I have kept from my youth, he says. All of them? Now, Jesus only lists five here. And all of these five have to do with our requirement to love our neighbor. These are horizontal commandments, if you will. The Ten Commandments could be divided into two. Part of them are love God. The other part, love your neighbor. And Jesus goes after the love your neighbor ones. And he says, I have kept all of those. Really? Never lied? Never lied to someone? You've never dishonored your parents? You never resisted their authority? You never, they never had to tell you something twice? And then, of course, keep in mind what Jesus taught about the true nature of the law. That hatred violates the law concerning murder. Murder. You can't say I've kept this law if you've hated. Lust violates the law concerning adultery. You can't say I've never committed adultery if you've lusted. And so it becomes evident that this man probably broke all of these laws. A few months ago, my wife and kids broke down in Park in the van. And so I drove out there to see what was going on, and the car needed to be towed, and so they were going to drive my car back to Fillmore, and I was going to ride with the tow truck driver, and I get in his truck, and I think, I'm going to share the gospel with this guy, and I was like, nah, I don't feel like it, Then I was like, yeah, I should, so I realized, okay, I got about five minutes, I mean, we're just past Grimes, you know, the curvy Grimes Canyon, I've got... Just a few minutes here. So, um, he's Middle Eastern. I asked where he's from. And when I meet people from other lands, I, my next question always is, what's the predominant religion in that land? I think he said Libya, maybe. Um, and then if he, st- you know, he starts talking about the religion. Like, the religion's on the table now, so it's not that awkward to turn the conversation toward the cross. So, um, I asked him, If that's what he believes, Islam, no, I don't believe in God. And we talked about that for about a minute. And then I decide I'm going to take him through the law and and, and circumvent. In his mind, he's already decided, I don't believe in God. But I want to take him through the conscience and show him his guilt. So I said, you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Yes. The Ninth Commandment says, thou shalt not lie. Have you ever told a lie? No, I've never lied. Come on, man. You've never lied. No, I've no, you, you can ask my wife. I'm the most honest person. All the people I used to work with always talk about how honest I am. And da, 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 da. All right. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Well, oh, I don't believe in God, but no, I've never done that. You've never used the Lord's You've never sworn in anger and used either the title of God or the name of God. No, I've never done that. And so I'm taking him through the commandments. And I couldn't even get to the cross because apparently this man has never sinned. (laughs) And so he could not see his need. And similarly, this rich young ruler does not see his need. In fact, he thinks that his outward obedience to the commandments is what God requires and he's good to go. Now, you know, you read some of these accounts, you kind of got to do a psychological profile of the guy. You kind of make assumptions. I wonder if he's thinking this. I wonder if he's thinking that. I wonder if he's probably pretty pleased with himself at this point. I mean, he comes to the rabbi and, you know, he corrected him on the good teacher thing, but he says about eternal life, here's these commandments, and he says, oh, I've kept all those. I think he's probably feeling pretty good about himself right now. Check those boxes, already did those. Maybe he even thinks Jesus will say to him, well done, good and faithful servant, the kingdom belongs to you. But Jesus can see the man's heart. And Jesus exposes what is hidden. And so to bring this man's life into focus, he has to go after that one thing that he is living for to show him that he is a lawbreaker and to show him that he has broken the most important commandment of all. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, He said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. <clears throat> so the man comes to Jesus with a question What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds by giving him the commandments. And then he tells him to sell everything. Now, is the message that Jesus brings to the world, everyone must sell everything they have and distribute it to the poor and then they can become Christians? Nope. Is the Gospel faith in Jesus plus selling all of your possessions? No. This is a unique unique encounter where Jesus gets to the heart of the issue with this individual. This is not the message He's broadcasting. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus tell someone they must sell everything they own as a prerequisite to follow Him. It's nowhere else to be found. Yes, you must deny yourself. Yes, you must take up your cross. Yes, you must hate all other relationships in comparison. Yes, Jesus must have your absolute allegiance. All those things are true. But Jesus gives this man these particular instructions because He must show him He is not a keeper of the commandments. This man is riding high On this idea that he has kept the commandments and Jesus is about to topple that thing down. The first commandment is I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. And rather than this man being someone who has kept God's law, Jesus reveals that he has a God substitute his money. Jesus exposes his heart and reveals that it is his wealth that he serves. Again, psychoanalyzing this guy with little information, but I would gather he probably gets comfort and security and joy from his wealth. His wealth has probably become the basis for his peace and contentment and well-being. It's his wealth he cannot live without. And it's his wealth that is the most important thing to him. And it is his wealth that Jesus shows puts a barrier between himself and God. And all of this is revealed by a simple statement from Jesus. Sell it all. Let's go. Eternal life this way. But you've got to sell it all first. Now, the idea that money would be the thing that kept you from God would be so countercultural in that day. I mean, money was the evidence that you had God's favor. Uh, prosperity was the sign that God loved you and desired to bless you because He wouldn't have given you all of those things otherwise. I mean, that kind of thought goes all the way back to the book of Job. But wealth cannot be the indicator that a person is in good standing with God. There are lots of bad men in the Bible who were rich. Jesus and the disciples themselves were poor. Jesus had no place to lay his head. So that bad theology just doesn't add up. And this man receives quite the shock. Perhaps he came to Jesus hoping to hear that he was on the right track. Maybe he thought that Jesus would say he was a candidate for heaven and maybe even there was nothing that he lacked. But instead, the man goes away sad because Jesus goes after the only thing he was unwilling to part with. Now, we're going to look at this, more of this next time. But in closing, I want to ask you, I think this is a good question to ask in light of this text. Is there anything you are unwilling to part with to follow Christ? If Jesus were to say to you one thing you still lack what would that thing be? While the Gospel is about pointing people to faith in Jesus, it is also a call to self-abandonment, self-denial. It is a call to surrender our very lives. That means you cannot hang on to the world and also gain Christ. That means there cannot be any greater pursuits in this life. There cannot be any stronger allegiances to something else. There cannot be any other gods. What is it in your life that could be a barrier between you and God? It was 67 years ago today that Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were murdered by the Warani people in Ecuador. Jim Elliott, maybe you have familiar with him. He has a saying that is very well known. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Both Hetty Green and the rich young ruler refused to surrender what they could not keep, which was their wealth, to gain what they could never lose, which was eternal life. The Gospel is not sell everything to follow Jesus, but it is true that when we come to Christ, we are to surrender everything. And there is a difference, and we will talk about that more next week. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for all of the various encounters that You have through the Gospels that bring so much light onto our very path that You not only give us direct commandments, but You give us interactions and narratives that describe a certain truth in a different way. And I pray for our fellowship, our congregation, if there are any here who have placed a barrier between You and them because of something that You call them to forsake, I pray, Lord, that they would see Your goodness, that they would see the value of everlasting life, that they would turn from that, that they would surrender it to You, and that they would take Your hand and walk with You into eternity. Oh, Lord, this life is so short. As the years go flying by, I'm constantly reminded how foolish it would be to live for this world. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glories of eternity that we might not be seduced by the things in this life. And we commit all this to You in Jesus' name, Amen.